This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm joined today by Dan Coatesworth. Hiya. And today we're going to be covering markets news from Rolls-Royce to the impact that Black Friday had on markets. And we've got not one, but two fund manager interviews for you as Dan has pulled a few of them aside at our recent AJ Bell Investable Investing Conference. Yeah, lots of people like to fish for opportunities in the smaller company space. You can often find really interesting companies that are under the radar for quite a lot of investors. But sadly, this part of the market has been quite challenging in recent years as Telworth small cap fund manager Paul Marriage explains later in the show. And Dan also spoke to a bond fund manager in what has been a very interesting year or so for the sector. So don't miss the interview with Ariel Bezalel from Jupiter Strategic Bond Fund later in the podcast. Also today on the podcast, we've got an update on the energy price cap as prices will rise again from January. There's also a warning about potential rate cuts from one of the nation's favourite providers. And we've got an update on the regulator cracking down on so-called greenwashing of funds, where funds purport to have sustainable credentials but fall short of actually having them. But first, before all that, Dan, let's look at markets. And we've had some news from the ECB on inflation. Yeah, I mean, we've had sort of kind of a one step forward, one step back sort of pattern with equities over the last week. I think sort of one minute, everyone's really excited that interest rates might have stopped going up. But then the next thing we get someone from a big central bank saying, hang on a minute, the fight against inflation is still happening. So I think you can sort of translate that into, you know, we could still raise rates a little bit further. And that's what we had on Monday from the ECB president, Christine Lagarde. And, you know, of course, lo and behold, equity markets went into retreat afterwards. I think investors kind of been thinking about, you know, we should be in this sort of pivot stage. So um, for a long time, we've been talking about how, how high could interest rates go. Now it's like, have they have they stopped rising? And when could we start to see interest rate cuts? But I just think central banks are not having anything about this at the moment. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey said a couple of days ago that UK rates would not be cut in the foreseeable future. However, we've got quite a few investment experts who believe that the US will certainly see some rate cuts next year. Um, Indeed, on Tuesday, we had the Federal Reserve Governor Christopher Wallace saying that inflation, if it continues to decline, that the central bank could start to, to lower rates. And he's sort of saying, you know, it's nothing to do with trying to save the economy. It's just basically just being consistent with every policy rule. So there's no reason to say that we will keep it really high. So, of course, there's this sort of conflicting messages going on here. So I'm, I'm not surprised that equities are not quite sure which direction to take at the moment. But um, it's worth pointing out that the price of gold hit a six-month high this week. And that's because the, the dollar's been weakening. And also, I think that there's enough investors out there who, who do believe that the U.S., Sort of Federal Reserve has finished raising interest rates. So, so all in all, um, you know, I think we're on the cusp of, of something quite interesting movements in the market, but we still need a little bit more clarity from sort of the, from central banks before we could potentially see quite an interesting um, equity market rally. If if we do get the confirmation that um, rates have certainly stopped rising, and we you know we're looking forward to sort of cuts next. 
And we've just had Black Friday, which is obviously an important event for retailers. Firstly, and most importantly, Dan, did you do any Black Friday shopping? Do you know? Do you know? The, the answer would normally be no, but actually, weirdly, this year I did because there's quite a few Christmas presents I was thinking I wanted to get. I thought I'll just hold out just to see can I get them slightly cheaper. And lo and behold, yeah, I, I got some got some really interesting sort of discounts. How about you, Laura? Did you did you spend heavily? Are you prepared for the excitement? I bought an electric toothbrush. Oh, did you? Living the dream. (laughs) Living the high life because I needed one. So I thought may as well wait until Black Friday. What did you get? Did you get a lot of money off that? I thought that's the sort of thing that you... you See, I'm always dubious about these Black Friday deals because I think it was meant to be £100 and it was reduced to 35 but I'm not sure how recently it's been sold for £100. I should have checked Camel, 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 which is your favourite thing. Oh, it? yeah, love, love that website. <laughs> I've saw some really interesting stats about Black Friday this year. In the US in particular, there seems to be lots of spending. So uh, Adobe's been... Uh, looking at some figures and it, it thinks that, that spending is up 7.5% on last year. So that's $9.8 billion spent online on the Black Friday, which is the, which was the 24th of November. Um, big demand for stuff like electronics, TVs, audio equipment. Um, what also really interesting is that lots of people are using buy now, pay later. Um, so here we saw a 14% rise in the, the period from the 1st of November to the 26th of November in, in the US. And um, Now, this is interesting because US consumers got stimulus checks during the pandemic, and that sort of led to this big spending spree. There's now a feeling that this is all dried up. And now that sort of you're thinking, well, how is the US consumer still being able to fund all these purchases? So if you go back and have a look at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, every quarter they, they issue sort of a, a report on household debt and credit. And you can see in the second quarter that credit card debt in America increased by $45 billion on the first quarter. So I think you know the signs are that people uh, they spent the cash and now they're going into credit, uh, whether it's buy now, pay later, or, or credit cards. So um not necessarily a good sign for for the US economy if that's how people are um, sort of financing their purchases. Um, Barclays sees nearly half of Britain's credit and debit card transactions and said that the volume of transactions on Black Friday in the UK was actually down slightly compared to last year. So um, perhaps you know the UK consumer is a bit more cautious than than what we're seeing in the US. Yeah, and I think lots of people will use Black Friday to get discounts on things that they were going to buy anyway, a bit like you with buying Christmas presents. Um, And maybe the cost of living crisis has stopped some of that kind of impulse buying of things that we don't necessarily need. Um, But we are still seeing debt levels rising in the UK. We had some figures out just this morning um, showing that um, consumer credit is at its highest annual growth rate for, for a long period. And so we are still seeing those debt levels tick up with people putting money on credit cards and overdrafts and things like that. But let's dive into a bit more company-specific market news. We had an update from Rolls-Royce um, this past week. How's that faring? Yeah. So, I mean, the start of the year, we had a new chief exec who wasted no time 
essentially saying the business is in the right mess and he was going to fix it. Share price performance has been spectacular this year. Um, all investors are sort of looking at this stock and going, okay, this, they've got a new guy, clearly got a plan how to fix it. Um, you know, the fact he's sort of um, saying it's in a right mess shows that he, he's, he's not trying to gloss over the, um, the problems. Now we've got a new strategic plan. So Rolls-Royce is saying it's, it wants to quadruple its profits in the next four years and it will sell its air, electric aircraft division. Um, so it's aiming for operating profit of up to $2.8 billion by about 2027. That's four times as much it reported last year. Um, so I think... It, Obviously, we've got we've got a business here who you know, they've got a big new plan. Um, share price went up again on this news, but but I, I just got this lingering sort of feeling that you know it, it it's quite easy to sort of say okay we're going to cut costs um, and you know we're going to focus on our sort of bread and butter, perhaps pull back from some innovation. Now this might boost profits in the short term, but I guess you know you have to think about what about the longer term thing. So. Um, you know, the, I think that the, the new CEO's had his grace period now. Everyone's sort of bought into the turnaround story. We've really got to see some results, um, and and I think that you know it's going to be say six another twelve months before we can see um, you know the, the first signs of this. But uh, anyone looking at this sort of stock and thinking, okay, this has been one of the, the UK's best performing stocks in twenty twenty three. Next year. You know, I think that it could be quite harder to achieve sort of similar gains because um, no one really knows what what the share price will do. But it feels like again we're at a turning point in Rolls Royce. They've had the sort of the grace period. But, you know, now now show us show us the money, uh, as Jerry Maguire likes to say. <laughs> but next up, let's look at those proposals on so-called greenwashing. So this is the practice that happens in lots of different industries where companies put a green or an ethical badge on something to market as being environmentally friendly. It happens quite a lot in fashion where something might be badged as being sustainable or sustainable cotton. But actually, when you delve into the detail, it might not be as sustainable as you think. But it also happens in the fund industry, where you might find a fund that's branded as ethical or sustainable or being an ESG fund. But actually, what it's doing underneath the bonnet is perhaps not as sustainable as the investor would like. So the FCA is now trying to crack down on that and introduce a bit more of a level playing field. What do they want to introduce, Dan? Yeah, so I mean, they're sort of saying that, you know, if, you, if you've got a fund and you've got this sort of um, ESG sort of green sort of tint to it, you, you've got to have um, you know, clear evidence that is doing what it says on the tin. So they are going to introduce some labels that funds have got to use. Um, so this anti-greenwashing rule comes into effect next May, um, and then you, you'll start to see the, the investment labels from essentially next summer. And then from the marketing purposes, they've all these rules have got to be in place by the, you know, this time next year. So they've got to choose one of four specific labels and they've got to demonstrate that um, at least 70% of the assets sort of tick the right boxes. So um, they're a bit of a mouthful. It's, it's sustainability focus, um, sustainability improvers, sustainability impact, and then one that's got a mixed goals. So I, I think, yeah, really what we're saying here is that um, you've got fund managers have got to go and find companies that really are doing something good. And some, you know, for example, with the improvers, that that could be um, a label for products investing in assets that may not be sustainable now, but they've got an aim to improve sustainability for people or, or the planet over time. 
So I think this comes back to the, the, the point that lots of people have raised in the last couple of years where you've got things like oil companies that are being sort of considered to be sort of qualified for, for ESG funds. You think that you know, fossil fuel producers are, you know, surely they're, they're damaging environment, aren't they? But the fact that if they if they are investing in renewable energy, it might mean that they are they qualify for these things. And so I think people are getting really confused about. Um, like, Hang on a minute! I, I thought I was meant to be investing in a fund that investing in companies doing good. Um, that's not necessarily the case. So now that you can you will be able to look at these labels and get a sense of what's in there. So I mean, what what's your sort of take on it, Laura? You think is this going to work? I think it's very well intended and there definitely needs to be more clarity in that ESG investing space because I think it's very easy for an investor to just look at an ESG badge on a fund and assume that that's going to fit with their particular criteria. But I think that introducing four different labels with quite complicated names, if you think about the average investor on the street who's not doing this day in, day out, are those labels really going to make much sense to them? And are they really going to help guide them towards the right fund? Um, this is part of a long piece of work that's been going on, ongoing for a while to try and work out how to categorize these ESG funds. But ending up with four labels for them just doesn't feel like the neatest, simplest option out there to me. No, particularly if one is mixed goals, because you could just think you just lump anything in there, couldn't you? As long as you've yeah. got. Um, but I think you know, to, to me, the, the one to watch is the improvers label. Um, and I think we're already seeing signs that some sort of equity analysts are sort of um, going, oh, you know, does that mean that we're going to see some companies that normally you wouldn't you wouldn't sort of think wouldn't be included in, a, in an ESG style fund would could actually be, um, you know, qualify for it now. And so th- th- there's a really interesting stuff from Berenberg. They, they've had a look at some companies which um, on, on at face value you think, what, what on earth are they doing? So they're, they're flagging um, DCC, which uh, essentially distributes oil. Um, and gas to sort of petrol forecourts, Genuit, which makes plastic pipes, and Rotork, which makes valves for oil rigs. So, uh, you know, a face value, you think, well, none of those would would suit a, f- a fund. But what they're saying is, well, you know, DCC um, is aiming to halve its own emissions. It's also helping others transition to low carbon energy solutions. Um, Genuit provides products to help customers adapt to climate change and extreme weather like flooding. Rotalk helps oil and gas companies to reduce emissions through pipelines. So um, it seems to be here, you're going to get this flood of sort of new new sort of arguments for stocks to say, you know, oh, they, they all, all now fit the new new bill. Um, and there'll be a little bit of you know, initial excitement around these sort of names again. Um, but ultimately, I think if you did ask the average person you know what what do you want to get from investing in an ESG fund and it's sort of I think that they would expect all these companies to be perfect perfect systems now not a mixture of like some good some bad sort of thing so it's it's yeah I can see this 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 could be you know a real talking point going into next year and it's almost an impossible task because everyone's definition of what's sustainable is different and as an investor everyone's looking for a different level of of sustainability and and kind of ethical investments in their fund everyone's bar is different so it is quite hard to categorize these things um but i'm not sure we've necessarily landed on the answer and of course a lot of admin for the fund industry to you know work out which 
label they fit into, if at all, and categorize, which I guess is why um, firms have got until next year to to implement it. Of course, yeah. That, I mean, that's 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 a good point. You, if it's going to be more complex stuff, that means it's going to cost these companies more money to do it. And of course, you know, who's going to bear those costs? It's going to be higher fees for the products, isn't it? Mm. And so, yeah, it's not perhaps necessarily a, a good thing. So. But now let's dive into the first of our fund manager interviews for this week and talk about small caps, which is a favourite part of the market for many investors. Telworth fund manager Paul Marriage is considered to be one of the experts in finding the best opportunities in the smaller company space. You'll now hear Dan talk to him about what's going on in small caps and about certain stocks such as ASOS. Over to you, Dan. So, Paul, if you read most articles, looking back at historical performance of small caps, um, the message is kind of the same. You know, small caps have outperformed large caps over the long term. Why is it that since the end of 2021, small caps have been stuck in the mud? Uh, and there doesn't seem to be any sort of sign of it coming out of this sort of depressed period. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. It's definitely been the longest period of small caps being out of favour since I've been working in the small cap market since 97. Um, I think there's a couple of factors. I think the biggest one is probably technical in that we've had a big sell down of UK equities generally as people have reduced allocations to UK equities. So where a, a fund group or a, a life fund or whatever may have had a, a 10% allocation to UK equities gone down to you know, maybe sub two. And in that process, small caps have been offered as part of their whole portfolio. So we've had a, a market that's been very offered, i.e. more people wanting to sell than buy. And I think the second factor is we just haven't had the marginal buyer. Uh, if you look at previous cycles, marginal buyers came from different places. So probably after the dot-com boom, I think the marginal buyers were probably UK life funds, who still run a lot of active money then. Post-financial crisis, the marginal buyer in the, you know, the, the early part of um, the, the teens would have probably been international value funds, US value funds, that kind of thing. And in the early 20s, we've yet to find out who the, who the marginal buyer is. And at the moment, they've yet to come out of the woodwork. I think we might be getting to a point where it's just this stuff's too cheap. People are going to start buying it. We, we have heard a bit about some US endowments coming into UK small cap in the, in the last couple of months. So, you know, literally back end of 23. So that's a re- if that's right, uh, we, we haven't, you know, seen that yet uh, at Telworth. But if that's right, then, um, yeah, definitely that'll be a positive. The one thing we have seen is um, DC pension schemes talking about investing in AIM stocks because they are private assets and that would fit their private asset requirement of UK. So that would be a real positive as well. So I think there's one or two sort of bits of light at the end of the tunnel, but it's been a really, really long tunnel. You know, it's the HS2 tunnel through the Chilterns, this one. It's taking it's taking a long time to get out of. I was just going to ask you about uh, whether you're seeing in sort of, you know, is it bargains galore in small cap space? Um, you know, if, if it really is, surely someone would have sort of yeah. pounced on all these yeah. now. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny. You, you sort of look at stuff, it's way too cheap. I really ought to be buying that and then the next couple of months is it's quite a lot cheaper again you think oh, okay at least i didn't buy it last month um so i think that the the why aren't we seeing the market go up thing is well we are seeing the buyers the buyers are m a and just the, the increase in m a we've seen over the last 18 months is really significant and there's almost a bit a week at the moment and the premium i.e the premium over the share price are 40 50 percent average and we've seen over 100 a hotel chocolate was 130 140 i think when mars came in last week uh, sophion which is a software stock based up in manchester was 110 percent premium but the average premium is 40 50 and when you've got m a what that's telling you is non-market participants are saying hold on these great companies listed in the uk are the wrong price and we can pay a 40 or 50 percent premium or more and own 100% of them. So it's trade buyers 
like in the case of Mars, or it's quite often private equity. And the other interesting thing there is that private equity can use equity, i.e. not much debt, debt's expensive now, uh, to buy the whole of a small company. So we've seen a bit more private equity activity lower down the cap scale. And at the moment, there's more M&A in small caps than there are mid and large. So in terms of um, what, what you're looking for in your portfolio, are, are you looking for potential takeover candidates from, from day one when you make an investment? Or is that just uh, that's a, a, a sort of um, an after effect to the fact that something's really cheap? No, that's more of a, you know, specialist ARB funds and stuff look for that and they look for the difference. That isn't what we do. I think our general view is that over time, if you're buying a, a portfolio of 50 or 60 really high quality names that you think are the wrong price, the chances are there's other people who are going to think that too. So we get our fair share of M&A, but we never seek it. You know, sometimes it can be part of the investment case. You think, you know, this is a world-leading niche business that's trading at a 50% premium to, you know, its German peer or Japanese peer, and you think, you know, long run, if the investment case doesn't work out, that the management can persuade uh, the investors that it's a better quality business than the market's value, then someone else uh, will make that decision for you in M&A. But I wouldn't, you wouldn't buy a stock, we wouldn't buy a stock for purely the prospect of a bid. Are you happy to buy companies that look a bit broken? Um, and, and sort of, will you try and sort of help management along the way to try and find the solution? Yes. Yeah, so uh, to the, answer the first part of that question, yeah, definitely. A bit broken is fine. Uh, and, and that's quite an interesting point. Not totally broken. We're not sort of investing in basket case. Could be zero or could be a lot. We quite like what we call the value opportunity, which makes up about a third of our portfolio, which is, a, frankly, a broken company, but really importantly, where management think they've got some tools to fix, or they've got the tools, or they've got the levers uh, they can do to fix the company, and therefore rehabilitating the stock market and see the share price go up. Yeah, absolutely, we like those. Uh, they're a good contrast to our kind of world-leading P3M business that make up the majority of the portfolio. Um, in terms of helping management fix... We're not really activists like that. I generally take the view that if you're the CEO of a company, you know, with a 30 years experience, you know, making chain, I'm not going to tell you how to make chain. Um, you know, that's the, uh, my job is to work out whether the share price is right. You run the company, Mr. PLC, CEO or CFO, um, I'll try and work out whether the share price should be right. So, yeah, generally don't tell companies how to run their businesses. You've got a stake in the, the fashion group ASOS. Um, pretty good example of a company that's, certainly uh, slightly broken. I don't know, maybe that's an under, yeah. understatement, but um, they have a plan to fix things, but the market is not yet buying into this plan. Yeah, what, what, every what, company has a plan, doesn't it? Uh, and you're right. ASOS is quite an interesting one. It's definitely a value opportunity. Uh, and the argument with ASOS is that they did a lot of stuff wrong in terms of probably over-expanding, having too much stock, the classic kind of warehouse um, move issues, all the stuff that fast growth businesses do. People got very excited about these businesses in COVID, didn't they? The whole kind of online shopping, website and warehouse businesses went bonkers. Um, but actually sort of cut away all of that. New chief exec comes in, gives a few things. This is what we can do. We'll get stock down. We'll improve cash flow. And we're, you know, we're, we're a, we've got a good position uh, as an established online fashion retailer. Uh, and we can pull a few levers around that, working on what we're good at and not doing what we're bad at. Um, you know, we're focusing on things like returns and quality of what they're selling, ASPs, that kind of thing. Um, and I guess to some extent, if you buy ASOS shares, you're buying into the management's turnaround story and not much of it needs to happen for that share price to look really, really cheap. So I think we've already seen a bit of the improvement there in terms of the stock, uh, you know, stock coming down. And that's coming through to the share price a bit. I would say ASOS for us is a classic value opportunity trade. It's not going to be a three or four year holding. But if we made 30, 40% in six months, 
and it got off to quite a good start in our portfolio, we'll, we'll happily move it on. Um, so yeah, good value opportunity. I think still some work to be done. And sometimes value opportunities don't play out as you expect, when you expect. And I think probably ASOS is a bit behind the curve versus you know best expectations of how quickly things would change there. It's a tough, really tough consumer environment. So it doesn't matter whether you're selling WYSI stuff online or you know widgets around the corner in a corner shop. Consumers got less cash. Um, and you know, so it's going to be tough in, in the retail market. It's been interesting how, if you look at some of the stronger retailers like Next and MLS have actually done quite well on the high street. It's been a real consolidation of spend to a few actually, you know, kind of heritage names. In terms of sort of the outlook 2024, are you sort of optimistic things are going to be okay? Um, you know, obviously you clearly want the small cap space yeah. to do better, but I mean, just what, you know, We've just had the autumn statement, and in the UK, economic growth seems to be sort of slowing. Yeah. It's not not the most amazing backdrop. What, what, where do you stand from an investment point of view? Yeah, I was very bullish this time last year. If we'd done this podcast, I would have said, you know, my usual kind of buy UK small cap, which kind of you sort of got to do in your in, in my job. Uh, but uh, I guess this, if you think about what happened last time, if we were doing this conversation mid-November last year, we actually fairly quickly then went and made 20%, or just shy of 20%, and then it dribbled as, you know, First, we had SVB, which is a risk-off thing. It impacted none of our companies, but it was a risk-off thing for the markets. And then we had the reality of you know, a fairly tough consumer and economic environment. So from here, right, so rates are plateauing, so that's good. So the rest of the previous year, we've had rates going up. Rates look pretty flat, maybe nibbling off towards the end of next year. That's good. That's a kind of good certainty on borrowing costs. We don't have a lot of indebted companies, but it's good background. Probably some of the worst things that the consumer are now annualizing. So some of those things that made the consumer really squeezed, annualizing a bit, and clearly they've got some wage growth coming in coming off. Consumer probably getting into a slightly better place for, for 24, which is good news. Um, valuations a bit lower than they were last year. Nothing heroic out there. There's no one forecasting mega growth in forecasts. So you'd be worried if companies are all saying they're going to go 20% next year. They're not. Um, so so the, the sort of reason for being bullish this year is we've got another year of bad news in the price. And the outlook, okay, the, 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 the very short-term teeth of the economic outlook and the macro numbers and stuff, you know, they're not great, but no one expects them to be great. And actually, Historically, they've all been revised upwards, haven't they? So we look forward, we look back, oh, we're really bad back in November. Well, actually, it wasn't quite as bad as we thought because the numbers are a bit too pessimistic. Um, so entering 24, super cheap valuations, slightly you know, more bad news economically in prices and perhaps less bad news to come economically. Are we at peak economic bad news? If we're not, we must be quite close to it. So bearing in mind stock markets look through that, um, then, yeah, I am actually fairly bullish. I mean, we have seen a bit of a rally in small caps in the last few weeks. Uh, which is good to see. And let's see that. Let's hope that continues, you know, into Christmas, January, and we look at 24 as being one of those small cap recovery years. One of the really important things about small cap recoveries is you need to be in the first year to get all your outperformance. If you only join in the second year, you'll still outperform, but you'll lose kind of a third of your upside. So, um, really important to be in at the start and kind of weather the storm, be a bit brave. What have you been investing in recently? Any sort of taking any new positions, or are you just buying a bit more of what you've already got? Well, I think we've been keeping the portfolio really tight, so so we've not been splurging around to you know, buy everything that looks super cheap. Um, I think what we've done quite well is we've gone into a few fallen stars. So you know we've looked at a few companies that that were probably overvalued. People are really excited about them. They got hit by you know pessimism, market pessimism. You know weak earnings. So something like a future, which is a publishing business, bought into that on the dips. Actually rallied really hard already. That's been quite a nice rally trade. We'll probably fade that one and, and, and move on to something else. So that was Paul Marriage from Telworth UK Smaller Companies Fund. Next up, we wanted to touch on a few personal finance areas that could affect your money. So should we start with energy prices rising again from January? So Laura, what does this mean for our bills? 
Yeah, so this is the energy price cap is now updated every three months, so four times a year. Um, and the new price cap will come in from January. And at that point, um, the average energy bill will rise by £94 a year in comparison to what rates are at the moment. So that works out at just under £8 a month extra on energy costs. So what we've seen here is obviously energy costs are far lower than they were previously, but we're not getting that government handout that we were last winter. And so this uptick in bills at a time when people use the most of their energy during the winter, um, everyone's got the heating on, got the lights on more, um, is particularly unwelcome. Um Always we've got to remember that it's the units of energy that are capped, not that average cost that's capped. So your bills might be higher if you live in a drafty old Victorian house like I do and live with a husband who insists on turning the heating on all of the time, <laughs> then your bills are probably going to be higher. So it's a cap on the unit um, rate of electricity and gas, not that being a cap on, on your prices. Um, and another thing to highlight as well is that standing charges have increased over the years. And so this is the amount of money that you pay to get just to get the electricity and gas almost kind of delivered to your house. And this is a flat rate charge. Um, so the amount of energy you use doesn't impact it. And they have risen considerably. And now just over £300 a year of that average um, price cap is standing charges. And that's quite frustrating for people on lower incomes, people who are struggling to pay their energy bills, because there's no way that they can influence that money. If your energy bill goes higher, you can cut your energy usage, but there's no way of changing those standing charges. So that's quite a high charge for households to face. Now, Ofgem, the energy regulator, is looking into those and looking into potential ways to reform them. Um, and so we'll update you more when kind of the end of that review comes. Um, I thought it might be useful to touch on kind of future forecasts. Now, these obviously are forecasts, they're not set in stone. Um, but what the experts are expecting is that the energy price cap will drop in April slightly, um, drop back down to roughly what it is now. Um, and then there will be a further small drop in July as well in energy costs. So we're not sitting here saying that the trajectory of energy costs is sky high again, but clearly energy prices are very volatile and they're impacted by various things going on around the world at the moment. And so we have to take those estimates with a bit of a pinch of salt until we get closer to the time. Should we talk about some cash saving snags? I noticed in amid all the sort of the autumn statement stuff we had last week, National Savings Investments at NSNI snuck out an announcement about how much it's money it's attracted this year. And of course, this might have a knock on impact for savers. So Laura, what's exactly going on there? Yeah, so NSNI um, came out and said that it had drawn in £9.8 billion this year from savers. Um, and that is only for the first six months of its year. So it runs to tax year end. And this was an update just for the first six months of that period. Um, and why this is interesting is the way that NSNI works is it's set a target by the government of the amount of money that it needs to raise from savers. Um, and then that's what it aims towards throughout the year and 
that influences how much it changes interest rates. If it's seeing quite slow flows of money, then it might hike interest rates and draw more savers money in. Now, what's interesting is that the government's target for an SNI for the full year was seven and a half billion. So it's already shot way over that just in the first six months of its year. This all seems a bit kind of technical and um, why do we care about targets that the government set? But it has a direct impact on savers because if NSNI has already attracted all of the money that it needs for the year, in fact, actually, it's attracted more than it needs for the year, then it doesn't have to be so attractive. Its accounts don't have to be so attractive. And so what that means is that we might see interest rate cuts or on premium bonds, for example, we might see that prize fund reduce down again. Um, what we've seen so far this year is NSNI being quite aggressive in competing in that savings market as rates rose. We've seen premium bonds rise to a 23-year high on that effective prize fund. And they also launched these super popular one-year fixed rate bonds um, that drew in a huge amount of money. And that's part of the reason why they've drawn in so much money so far this year. So it's not a cautionary thing of NSNI is going to dramatically slash down all of its rates because it has to tread this tricky balancing act between attracting enough savers money in but not cutting rates so far that it sees huge outflows of money that kind of counteracts the money it's already drawn in. Um, but it does mean that we're unlikely to see rate rises from NSNI and we're probably going to see some cuts to some of those popular accounts. So, thanks, Laura. So should we bring on our next interview? So the bond market has experienced a bit of a rally in recent weeks, investors reacting to softer inflation data. And that sort of fed into potential changes to interest rate policies, as I was talking about at the start of the, the podcast. So let's bring on Ariel Bezalel from the Jupiter Strategic Bond Fund to learn where he's seeing opportunities and what to expect from bonds in 2024. So at the end of 2022, I, I was reading an article and it quoted you, talking about preparing your portfolio for a sharp downturn. I think sort of 12 months on, the economy's looked to be a bit more resilient than people thought. Um, although we are, you know, there are signs that we are entering a slowdown. So on, on that basis, do you see, was your positioning perhaps 12 months ago a little bit, you're too early for this? And, and how, how has that sort of impacted performance of the Jupiter Strategic Bond Fund? Yeah, so coming into 2023, we were, um, probably prematurely, I would say, somewhat cautious. Um, and that's impacted performance short term. Uh, what's caught us offside, I think what's caught us offside has been the strength of the US consumer. Um, you know, to quote Jamie Dimon uh, not too long ago, you know, he said the US consumer has been spending like uh, drunken sailors. And, you know, if we look in past history, um, whenever the US consumer has received a windfall, like they did the stimulus checks during COVID, they would typically save half and spend half. Uh, this time round, with all the amount of revenge spending, um, the US consumer has taken the you only live one, once approach, and they've literally blown through uh, all the excess savings uh, that they've built up as we sit here today, more or less. Um, so that's taken us a bit by surprise. And on top of that, we've had a, a, a reckless uh, US government um, in terms of fiscal profligacy over the last 12 months as well, which has also been driving economic growth uh, somewhat higher than, somewhat stronger than we expected over the course of 2023. However, 
uh, as we look out um, into 2024, these two very powerful tailwinds, uh, we believe, are now set to turn into headwinds as the US consumer is basically now tapped out. And a lot of that stimulative spending in, in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the CHIPS Act, a lot of that is in the rearview mirror. And uh, we see some pretty big headwinds building up as we go into uh, the next 12 months. I mean, so, so in, in that sort of situation, what would work best um, if you know, obviously running a portfolio of sort of um, bonds, corporate bonds and government bonds, is, is there something that you definitely want to own and definitely something you've got to avoid as well? Yeah, so as we look uh, into next year, uh, what we've been positioning our portfolio for is um, resiliency. Um, resiliency against a sharp, sharp slowdown in economic growth, uh, ultimately. And you know, with that in mind, we have been rotating out of cyclicals in the portfolio. So companies that are exposed to the um, economic cycles, that includes things like um, auto producers, chemical manufacturers, uh, retailers, and shifting into more defensive sectors where the top line and the bottom line their profitability should be somewhat more resilient as we go into a slowdown. So that includes sectors like um, healthcare, so within that things like pharmaceutical uh, producers, uh, companies such as telecoms, uh, cable companies, they tend to be quite resilient as well as we go into a recession. And then on top of that, over the course of this year, as yields in government bond markets have been shooting higher, um, it's been a bit like catching the falling knife, admittedly, um, but we have been increasing exposure to government bonds uh, and government bonds of all sorts of maturities. In America, we've been buying more lately uh, short-dated government bonds. Uh, but over the course of this year, we've also been building up a portfolio in longer-dated uh, maturities uh, because we believe that as the recession kicks in, um, you know, these should really, really start to perform as the inflation worries uh, subside. I noticed that if looking at the government bond holdings in your portfolio at the moment, you've got quite a lot of Australian bonds in there. Is it, is it um, you know, do, do you obviously take a view about what, how, how strong a country is and, and what's going on there. What, what is it about Australia that you like? Yeah, th th there's a few reasons behind that. Firstly, you find Australian government bonds are well correlated to US treasuries. I think historically there's as much as something like a 90% correlation between Australian government bonds and uh, the likes of... US Treasuries, so admittedly there is a bit of portfolio diversification going on there. But also, if we look at uh, Australia in isolation, it has uh, mounting problems. Uh, it has a, a housing bubble which is now uh, deflating. I, I actually still believe we're only probably middle, middle of the way through that process. Um, also on top of that, it has a very, very highly indebted uh, consumer. So I do fear that as rates have been rising, uh, the consumer is, there is looking stretched. And then the other thing is, over the last you know 20 plus years, the Aussie economy has been highly reliant on China growth. And as we look at China growth today, uh, it's hard to find much of it. <laughs> the, uh, the economy in China is really struggling with uh, profound demographic issues. The workforce has been contracting for a number of years. The overall population is now beginning to contract. On top of that, you've got a chronic debt problem in China, and then now in the midst of an unwinding, 
of probably the biggest housing bubble in, in post-war history. And I think they're going to wrestle with that for some time uh, to come. And thus far, the policy measures announced in China to rescue the housing market, uh, we think are nothing but piecemeal and nowhere near enough to, uh, to bail out the economy. So Australia will feel the fallout in terms of reduced demand uh, from China for a lot of the export, particularly raw materials uh, that Australia has historically exported to China. So, so in that situation, why is it, you know, if, if Australia's got some headwinds, why would you actually want to own the bonds then? Yeah, so the bonds are um, highly rated by the, the rating agencies. They are AAA rated. And so with that in mind, um, as I said earlier, they're correlated well to US Treasuries. So as the rate cutting cycle um, unfolds over the next 12 months, uh, Australian government bonds should be a beneficiary. I mean, what I would add is, I mean, believe it or not, uh, over the course of over September and October of this year, there have actually been more rate cuts than rate hikes. Um, a lot of that has been led by the emerging market economies, who were the first to hike rates to combat inflation, you know, 12 to 24 months ago. Um, they are now the first to cut rates. And we're even seeing some in the developed world beginning to join the rate cutting party. And we think it's only a matter of time before the ECB and uh, the US uh, start to cut rates. I mean, the other important thing to note that in the backdrop, what we're also seeing, which gives us extra confidence that being long government bonds is the right trade and why we think a recession is likely and also ultimately why we believe inflation is set to subside quite rapidly over the next 12 months is we see collapsing money supply growth everywhere. Uh, in America, money supply growth is running at around about minus 3.5% year on year. In Europe, money supply growth is slightly contracting as well. And in the UK, actually, money supply, supply growth is declining at an even more rapid pace than what we're seeing in America. So I, th I think quite a lot of people might have had bonds in their portfolio, thinking that you know if something went wrong with the equity market, the bonds are there to sort of act as a cushion. Um, last couple of years, it's not quite played out. I, I wondered whether the, you know, we, we got this situation now. People are thinking, do you know? Do I need to rethink the purpose of having bonds in a portfolio? What, what would be your argument to sort of say, you know, perhaps they still do have a place long term? Yeah, so, you know, due to the macro picture that I've outlined over the last few minutes, I think bonds over the next 12 months look particularly attractive. Um, but also what I would highlight is that equities look very expensive. Uh, you look at the equity risk premium, the earnings yield on equities, particularly in America. Um, I mean, in America, they're predicting 12% earnings growth next year and the year after. And I would suggest all the monetary tightening that's still to be felt in the real economy, you know, bear in mind monetary policy work through the long and variable lags. The Bank of England actually recently summed it up pretty nicely when they said that the real economy here in the UK has only thus far felt half of the impact of, the, uh, of, of those hikes so far. So we're still to feel the full fallout of all that monetary tightening. And so you know, gilt markets, the 10-year giving you a yield of over 4%. In US Treasuries, the 10-year giving you 4.4% uh, as of this morning. Um, to us, um, looks really attractive, um, you know, for a, for a risk-free risk investment, considering the macro backdrop. Well, thanks you have so much for joining us on the podcast. Really interesting to hear from you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
That was Ariel Bezalel from the Jupiter Strategic Bond Fund. And that is everything for this week. Join us next week when Dan and I will be back with two more fund manager interviews and all of the markets and personal finance news that you need. See you then. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.